Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is the Living History Podcast, broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a special bonus episode of Living History. As you've heard me talk about on previous episodes, our World War II cruise of New Guinea is coming up in August 2020. And we're going to visit Milne Bay, we're going to visit Rabaul, but most importantly, we're going to have a conference on board the ship with some of Australia's leading World War II historians. And one of those leading World War II historians joins me now. It's Dr. Carl James from the Australian War Memorial. Carl, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Matt, thanks for having me. The cruise, I'm really looking forward to it. I know that all the historians I've spoken to are looking forward to it. It's just a great opportunity to get up to a a part of the world that is not particularly accessible and you wouldn't normally go to. Are you looking forward to coming and exploring New Guinea with us? Oh, 100%. I'm really looking forward to it. And I'm a little bit disappointed. I still have to wait another year (laughs) before we embark on this fantastic project. Um, you just touched on the idea of us having having the historians on board, having a conference, and then um, exploring some of these battlefield sites at Milne Bay and then Bitter Park and Rabaul. And the neat thing I think we will have for this experience, which will make it different to going to a normal history conference, is that we can have these talks and presentations um, talking about the Battle of Milne Bay or Pacific War in 1942, and then we can just go ashore and explore it and see it. So it's one thing to discuss the Battle of Milne Bay from a, with a PowerPoint presentation and photograph and images, but then to get onto the little boat, go up to the deck, walk up and down, you know, there's no, well, there's Ace Road in Milne Bay, um, but to, to see the bay for yourself, it's going to be um, pretty exciting. The other thing that I think is going to be great, the nature of having a conference over several days on a cruise ship, is at the end of a day, after having walked the ground or participated in the conference, you're going to see the historians in, you know, if you're a passenger, you can go up to the historians in the bar and buy them a beer and, and tell them a story. So that, you know, I think we're all looking forward to that as historians is interacting with people and hearing their stories. When you go to a conference, there's a big separation between the speakers and the audience. You might get to ask a question at the end of a session, but that's about it. But here, we're all going to be in it together. And so I, I, there is a real feeling of camaraderie that's going to come through on this ship. We, we've picked this team of historians. You and I have worked very closely to put this conference program together and to pick the right historians. And we've picked people who are going to enjoy the having a beer and, and, and telling stories at the end of the day. It's, it's just going to be really exciting. Oh, yeah, we've known each other for many years. So obviously you and I, but also my, you know, Pete Dean's one of my great mates and Keiko Tamora is a fantastic historian. I used to work with Keiko here. So... The historical community is quite small and the people who are taking part in this trip, as well as being respected colleagues, are also friends. Um, so that will be quite exciting. And just It's nice travelling with your mates. Um, there will be lots of good discussion and I think having the ability to discuss an idea, discuss a concept, 
taking some time out, um, having a look at the battlefields at Rabau, a bit of Parker, the cemetery there, as well as um, looking at Mill Bay. But to reflect upon, so what was said in the lecture theatre, for example, have a look at the, the ground itself, think about what was there, what was experienced, and then to have that time to reflect upon it in, say, in the evenings and then discuss it with um, travelling companions, with friends, with other historians. That's when the really exciting bit happens because then things start to sink in. You can ask new questions uh, and it starts to make sense. And then having you know a group of historians on the trip we're there to be approachable like we're all we're all pretty easy going um just come up and have a chat you know we're here we want to learn and we learn by asking questions we, uh, we learn and share experiences so this isn't really going to be a lecture i don't think a sort of static you know uh lecture presentation so you have the presenter just talk to the group this is a two-way interaction it's a it will be different to what i've experienced in the past but i'm really looking forward to that exciting conversation it's going to be great. One of the key destinations that we're visiting is Milne Bay. Now, it, it's it's not a cruise. You know, I'd love to be doing a cruise that visits every key battlefield from the New Guinea campaign, and that's obviously beyond the reach of what we're doing. But we've got two pretty important ones there in Milne Bay and Rabal. You're an absolute expert on Milne Bay. Talk to me about that battle. I mean, we we as Australians talk about the first time the Japanese were defeated on land. It's got an iconic place in Australian military history. Is that deserved? Is Milne Bay the battle that we make it out to be? Oh, absolutely. So the Battle of Milne Bay took place in late August, early September of 1942. It's in the southern tip of Papua. Um, three airfields were in the process of being developed by the Allies, and the Japanese wanted to take Milne Bay. They wanted to secure the airfields as a way to support their overland operations along the Kokoda Trail. Likewise, uh, from the Allied point of view, they wanted to secure Milne Bay because that would secure the, the eastern approaches to the eastern seaborne approaches across the Coral Sea and to protect Port Moresby. So strategically, Milne Bay is quite significant for the defence of Port Moresby and the fighting of Papua in 1942. And then once you get down to the battlefield itself, so the Japanese invade, it's a small amphibious landing, takes place at night. The Australians are very much on the back foot because the intelligence is limited. Uh, the conditions themselves in Milne Bay are very hard to get around. At that time, it was raining constantly. There were very little roads, um, poor internal lines of communications. It made moving troops difficult because the Australians didn't have enough vehicles and the roads itself would just became a sea of mud. Uh, and also the Australians are in the back foot because while they know the Japanese have made one amphibious landing, what's to stop the Japanese from coming into the bay another night, which they did, and then deploying another force, say, in the reserve or behind the Australians? And so in many ways, the Australian Commander General Klaus is very much operating... Sorry, the Australian Commander General Close is operating in the dark and he doesn't really know what's going on for the first few days of the battle. Um, he once comments that the fog of war was never so thick as what it was at Milne Bay. And so it's quite a, a key fighting action. After several days, the Australians do get on to the offensive. They push the Japanese back across the bay and the Japanese forces are withdrawn um, in early September by sea. Overall, the battle lasts about a week. Um, and the general characteristic is the Australians are operating during the day, the Japanese are operating by night. Um, one of the key elements, the decisive factor from the Australian point of view was a very close cooperation with the Air Force. You have Australian Kitty Hawks flying and strafing what's thought to be Japanese positions. Um, it's sometimes said that, you know, uh, ja Australian machine guns and shells from the Kitty Hawks are flying into the 
jungle itself shooting up the Japanese positions. Um, you've got the Japanese use of tanks. So it's a pretty nasty, vicious action itself. Uh, and it's also the first decisive defeat of a Japanese amphibious force during the war. So from a military history point of view, the battle is key. It's one of those key moments in the fighting in Papua. And when you go to Milne Bay today itself, it's, it is actually one of those specific war battlefields that makes a lot of sense really easily because it is in the bay. You can see just how big it is, how expensive it is. You have the mountains on one side, that very narrow coastal strip, and it's easy to put yourself into the feeling of 1942, thinking how do you move your forces around? Because the bay is, is long and narrow, but it's too far to walk. How do you move forces when you don't have a number of um, vehicles when the small craft you have have been shot up and, and destroyed by Japanese maritime activity already, how do you move your forces around? And you can see that it's a bay, and you know that the Japanese, the control of the sea is still being contested. Um, so you know the Japanese can come in at any time at night and deploy another amphibious force anywhere else. So it is one of those unique places where um, going to Milne Bay, it's easy to make sense of the battlefield, what happened, why it happened there, uh, and you do get a... It just it just clicks. It's as simple as that. I went there the first time. I was like, oh, yeah, I really kind of get it now. Um, it's a little bit like Anzac Cove. You don't need a lot of background information to make sense. It, it, you do get the vibe really easily. Isn't it great visiting a battlefield like that where everything just falls into place? Um, Gettysburg was like that for me as well. That you read about it, you understand it, and I'm not even saying here that you have an encyclopedic knowledge on the battle, but you just you kind of know what went on. And as soon as you walk the ground, it, it all falls into place. I'm really looking forward to going. I haven't been to Milne Bay. I've been to Rabal, not to Milne Bay, and I'm really looking forward to, to going there and, um, and walking the ground. It's going to be absolutely fantastic. And still, some from, from what I've heard, some good sights to see from the fighting. Oh, yeah. So there's still an element. The modern-day road cuts across um, one of the airstrips that was built um, during the war, during the campaign. Number three strip, um, so that's where the climactic moment of the battle came. So the Japanese got to the outskirts of one airstrip. They're making their way across and they cut down. Um, there was a temporary battlefield memorial that was built after the action where over 200 Japanese soldiers are buried. Um, that memorial is still there. You can still see the cutout of the airstrip. The modern-day road follows closely the, the wartime road. Um, it's not exactly in the same alignment, but it's pretty pretty close. You get the river crossings. The river crossings are still there, and that's actually a, f a, a bit of an easy way to orientate yourself to the ground because while the roads move, the river's still in the same place-ish. And that's where the Australians largely had their defensive lines because once you get the thing, well, this is actually a fairly wide river, so that's a natural defensive position and you're going to set up behind it. Um, likewise, some of the early positions where the Japanese um, invaded where they landed, some of their landing beaches are still there-ish. Um, you have a rough location of where French was awarded the Victoria Cross. It's not exact. Um, there's a, a wartime marker to him, and it's in that vicinity because I think it's actually now probably under small industrial estate. But you, you do get the sense of um, the battle and the area. And there's also, post-battle, Milne Bay became a major Allied base and major American base. You still get some of those relics uh, there, both at the sea as well as deeper into the jungle. And one of the most, I think, evocative items in the collection of the Australian War Memorial is the Japanese tank that was captured at Milne Bay. It's, I've seen that famous photo of the, the tanks pushed off the side of the road. 
Um, but then when you see it up close, it's a, it, they look so little in the photo. They look little and, and not intimidating at all. But when you see it up close and you see the gun on the front and machine guns mounted on it, you know, a, a tough bit of kit. It would you know, wouldn't have been fun to face in the jungle. Oh, not at all. Though. And imagine it's dark. It's night. It's raining really heavily. You're an Australian infantryman. You've dug in, and so what does that mean? You basically got your bayonet. You've dug a little hole in the in a muddy hole in the ground. It's raining. You hear this noise thundering towards you. You, you know, you know. We don't have any tanks, so that's the sound of the advancing Japanese tanks. Um, and the Japanese use their lights on their tank like searchlights. So it's the same way Australians would use a spotlight to go roo shooting. That's what the Japanese did when they're lighting up the Australian positions to engage with their tanks. We now know with hindsight that there were two, you know, the Japanese landed two of these Hargo tanks. However, 75 years ago, if you're a digger, 2nd, 10th Battalion, you don't know that. You just know you have this dark, lumbering vehicle coming out of the darkness, spotlighting you amongst the rain. It's confusion. You have the the fear of noises behind you. Um, Have the Japanese already infiltrated your position? Are we going to be cut off? We're being surrounded. It was terrifying and some of these soldiers so soldiers from the 18th brigade for example they'd already fought they were combat veterans they'd fought at Tobruk in 1941 so these weren't necessarily inexperienced soldiers so 18th brigade's you know, a bunch of um, veterans and they're operating alongside the 7th militia brigade and they are the young conscript soldiers of the militia so there's a real mixed bag of experiences and the neat thing is with those and those tanks from Milne Bay and those photographs and we have one of the tank one of the tanks from Mumbai is on display here at the memorial. We have a pretty good sense of knowing exactly where that photograph was taken. So we know where the Japanese abandoned those vehicles and then where they were subsequently captured from um, Mumbai. And Mumbai, one of the interesting little footnotes of Mumbai is it was a great source of intelligence for the Allies. So in addition to capturing the two Hargo tanks, um, there are other pieces of Japanese equipment, uniform that was captured. There's a flamethrower, machine guns, um, bulletproof vests. So it actually turned out to be a great information coup um, for the Allies. Just broadly, Carl, the, the New Guinea campaign in general, we, we, there's been, particularly since, say, the 50th anniversary, there's been a lot of study that's been done, a reinterpretation of the importance of Kokoda and New Guinea. Is there anything more to say about the New Guinea campaign? Are there any new stories to tell, or have we have we pretty much told the story of New Guinea? There are always new stories to tell. We're talking about a campaign where there are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of servicemen from Australian, American, Japanese, as well as those voices from Papua New Guinea, uh, the, our Papua New Guinean voices. We're yet to come to terms with their experience of the war. So these were men and women who were rounded up and worked for the Allies, they worked for the Japanese, um, they were dispossessed, they lost their land, they, their tri- traditional communities were broken up. Um, there are any number of new experiences and new stories, new questions that we are yet to learn. True, some of the battles have been well discussed. So, for example, you know, Kokoda has been discussed at length, um, but we haven't really done the deep work with Milne Bay. The beachhead battles of Bruno Gunner and San Ananda, for example, are always just included almost like a, as a footnote. And then once we move into those 1943 battles around Ley, Salamala, Finchhafen, or Saddleberg and the like, maybe one or two historians have discussed it in detail. The official historian, John Coates, um, Philip Bradley. Philip Bradley's done a lot of work on the New Guinea campaign. But that's pretty much about it. And even then, we're still focusing on largely an Australian army experience. Um, the services aren't there. We don't really bring in the New Guinea experience and still there's only been about a handful of people who've really grappled with Japanese sources. 
So there's lots to discuss and lots to think about from a historical point of view. That's what I'm most looking forward to about the cruise is we're not just going to focus on the two destinations we're visiting, Milbay and Rabal. We're not just going to focus on a small aspect. This will give us the opportunity to discuss over the course of the conference the New Guinea campaign in some detail and also the Pacific War. The, the context is always vital when you discuss these things and I think that's that's something I'm really looking forward to is is, is your interpretations, the, the discussions, the conversations we're going to have about the New Guinea campaign and the Pacific War in general. It's going to be great. I can't wait. If you're listening to this and you want to come along and hear more of what Carl's got to say, I think this has been a great taste of, of how great the cruise is going to be. Please visit our website at battlefields.com.au to find out about the cruise. It's filling up very quickly, but there are still cabins available. It's going to be a wonderful experience. If you're interested in the Pacific War, I encourage you to come along. It's going to be absolutely brilliant. Carl, can't wait. As you say, we've still got a year to go. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm impatient, but it's going to be a great journey. Wonderful to have you on board. And thank you very much for joining us today to discuss it. No worries, Matt. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.